0: I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a -a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History. Some time ago, we talked about Patrick of Ireland and how he left his home in England to bring the gospel to the land where he had been previously enslaved, Ireland. The gospel went full circle when some Irish monks traveled to England to bring the gospel to places where it had been forgotten. It was like a chain reaction. An Irish missionary, Columba, founded a monastery in Iona, an island off the coast of Scotland. Later, Oswald and Oswy, two brothers from a noble family in England, went to Iona to study and became Christians. Then, when Oswald became king of Northumbria in southern England, he called a monk from Iona to preach the gospel in that region. So the circle was complete. I'm Emma, I'm 15, and I
1: live in Raleigh, North Carolina.
2: I'm Lucas, I'm 15, and I live in San Diego, California.
1: And I'm Mina, I'm 14, and I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. First, I need to ask, these two brothers were Oswald and Oswy. There must have been some confusion when their parents called them.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it gave them a good excuse. Oswald, why didn't you come when I called you? Oh, I thought you called Oswy.
2: But uh, that wasn't uncommon in older times. Uh, for instance, Emperor Constantine called his sons Constantine, Constans, and Constantius, and his daughter, Constantina.
1: Yeah, some kingly names are interesting, like all the Ethel something we've seen in another episode. And speaking of confusing names, there's another Irish monk named Columbanus. So not the Columba that founded Iona, but a different monk who started monasteries of France in France and Italy and was very influential all over Europe.
2: Columba means dove in Latin. So maybe those names were a
1: wish for peace. Speaking of traveling, I've read that some Irish monks went to Iceland and some say that some of the earliest Irish monks, Brendan the Navigator, went as far as North America.
0: Man, Brendan the Navigator. I love those names with like the special titles. Um, But those Irish monks were not just great missionaries. Their monasteries became a model of Christian communities for other countries. Also, they hosted great schools and large libraries, preserving many important ancient texts besides the Bible.
2: And they were also amazing artists, right? I saw a picture of one of their Bibles, the Book of Kells, which is uh, beautiful.
0: I know. And hopefully we can put some pictures of that on our website, which you should totally go visit. I like their creativity. On one page, you can even see a tiny picture of two mice
1: fighting over a piece of bread. Speaking of mice, an Irish monk wrote a poem about his cat whose job was hunting mice, right? Yes, it is one of my favorite poems, Pangurban.
0: Pangurban and I at work, adepts equal cat and clerk. His whole instinct is to hunt, mine to free the meaning pent. It's a long poem, but we'll put the link to the full thing on our website.
2: Well, that just goes to show there's so much to discover about these Irish monks and their influence on the church in Europe.
0: Yes, and thankfully, we have a wonderful expert to help us with this, Dr. Crawford Gribben, author of The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. Dr. Gribben, thank you so much for joining us.
3: I am a thanks. My name's Crawford. I live in Ireland, and I'm 49 years old.
0: <laughs> well, we heard that you just came back from a boat trip where you followed the route of Brendan the Navigator. We would love to hear some about it.
3: Yeah, that's true. So um, first half of June, my son and I, uh, Finn, who's 12, he turned 13 when we were away. Um, we set off in a boat, um, not on our own. We, we weren't sailing like Brendan did on a 12 foot long boat uh, m- made out of um, wooden struts and um, leather skins. Uh, we had a bit more modern contraption to sail in, but we sailed up through the Hebrides as Brendan did when he called in to see Columba and Iona. We sailed past Iona. We sailed up past... Um, uh, Lewis, Stornoway, all of that area We came around Cape Wrath went up to Orkney um, um, Up to Shetland And then from Shetland we set off to Faroe The Faroe Islands, really remarkable place uh, And from Faroe We circumnavigated Iceland And actually made a trip up into the Arctic Circle To see an island mm-hmm. called Grimsey Island Lots of puffins And lots of church history along the way Really exciting
0: that is so cool. <laughs> so we were kind of curious to hear how much of the legends about Brendan are true. He was one of the you know quote unquote Irish apostles. So what was his role in the Irish Church, and did he really sail all the way to America?
3: Yeah, th- 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 those are th- th- those are great questions. Uh, almost impossible to answer. So we know that we know that Brendan um, was a friend of Columba. Uh, he calls in to see Columba um, on one of his journeys uh, into the Atlantic but we know that Brendan is like a lot of other Irish monks of that period uh, they had a real desire to travel um, um the reasons for that travel might have been missionary work it certainly was for some of them and um, others were really wanted to be left alone they wanted a life of devotion prayer Not quite solitude because they often moved as part of communities or to join communities. Uh, And so we know from uh, Adovenan's life of Columba, for example, um, there's lots of reports of Irish monks setting off in these tiny boats and cruising all the way through the North Atlantic. Uh, So we we don't know how far they got. Well, we we have a rough idea in that there's archaeological evidence uh, in caves in Iceland of crosses that were inscribed in a very distinctive way that was typical of the monks who followed Columba and uh, very distinctive uh, of of that community but those those are inscribed in caves and the the archaeologists who've worked in those caves are able to date those inscriptions to before the Vikings ever arrived on Iceland so we know that somehow Irish monks made it right the way across to Iceland. That's absolutely documented. Um, the story is about Brendan going beyond Iceland to the, the land of paradise. Um, of course, you know, we'd all love to know who that was and can we go to our holidays as well? Uh, but but Brendan wasn't the first Irish monk to claim to have been there. In fact, he's inspired to visit. Um, that island through stories he had heard from other monks who'd been there before so that again reminds us that this isn't one man just setting out like a, a an intrepid explorer, a sort of 5th century Shackleton to see how far he can get, this is someone who's participating in a whole culture of travel um, of, of faith inspired travel, whether it's missionary travel, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's travel for the life of, of solitude and prayer and study and um, we, you know, there's lots of different motivations but do we know that Brendan got to America? No, we don't. But this is where the story gets interesting. He does report discovering grapes. And of course, we know that when the Vikings make it all the way across to North America, um, what they call the land they they, they land on is, is Vinland. Because also, you know, they're up there probably in around Maine, somewhere in that part of the region of the northeast uh, United States, uh, present United States, uh, where... Um, uh, vines are actually able to grow. And so th- th- there's lots of evidence uh, th- that suggests that Brendan might well have got there. We know that he could have got there because in 1976 and 1977, uh, an English explorer called Tim Severin built a boat exactly according to the design described in Brendan's travel story as Navigatio. And he sailed that boat with a crew all the way across from Ireland um, through Faroe, through Iceland all the way across to Newfoundland. So he proved that 6th century technology could have taken Brendan to America. It was at least possible. And I think that's just an incredibly exciting possibility.
1: Well, another legendary Irish church leader. There's a story that he faced the fearsome Loch Ness Monster and scared him away. What legends about him are true and why is he important in church history?
3: Yeah, thanks, Mina. So we're talking about Columba. Columba is or was uh, an Irish monk Um, He came from a a minor royal family in Ireland and actually um, was excommunicated from the Church of Ireland. He fell out with people because he uh, made an illegitimate copy of someone else's psalm book. So I don't know if you guys like to sing and read the psalms, but here's a good reason not to steal anybody else's psalm book because you might end up like Columba and get excommunicated. So what did he do when he got excommunicated? Well, he decided he would flee to Scotland. And he ended up in this tiny island called Iona, just off a larger island called Mull um, on the west coast of Scotland. And he established a little base there. He took 12 um, friends with him. Uh, He established a little monastery. Now, Iona today is really, really remote. No one ever goes there. You've got to make a real effort to get to Iona. But in the sixth century, Iona was really easy to get to because in those days, people would have travelled by boat. Uh, and so these coastal locations were very, very accessible. But what's also really remarkable about Iona is that it's positioned to take advantage of a, a, a gap in the Scottish landscape that more or less divides Scotland in half. So Scotland is more or less divided in half in, in half by what the by what we call the Great Glen. And that comes that, that's a glen, a glen that goes or a valley in American terms, that runs um diagonally across Scotland from the east coast to the west. And so Columba was able, with some of his friends, to sail up these little boats all the way up the locks, the interconnected lochs of that great glen, to get all the way to the other side of Scotland, moving from the the, the west of Scotland, which was strongly influenced by, by Irish culture and Irish language, Gaelic language, into a very different kind of realm, the realm of the Picts. Now, the Picts are a very curious culture, a dark age culture we know virtually nothing about. But Columba was a missionary to the Picts. And his biography tells us what it was like to be a missionary to the Picts. Um, he had to take translators with him because, um, although these were both Celtic languages, Irish and Pictish, um, they weren't mutually comprehensible. And so Columba took translators, went up into the Great Glen. Uh, his biography tells us extraordinary stories about people who became Christians, entire families being baptized as they convert to the Christian faith. But we also find, mean as you mentioned, um, these strange stories about encounters with a monster. Now, what's really interesting is that when Christians in this period, in these islands in Scotland and Ireland, when they're writing about Christianity or, or the, the world of the Christians, they always see monsters outside it. Remember, they don't really know the world the world's really mysterious to them. So, you know, they set off in these little boats across the Atlantic, up these curious glens. They have no idea what they're about to meet. And Brendan and his Navigatio describes seeing sea monsters, uh, which looked to us like whales, but he wouldn't have known necessarily that's what they were. Columba describes going up into Loch Ness uh, and seeing a great monster uh, there in, in, in that extremely deep loch. So, uh, does d- d- does he actually meet the Loch Ness Monster? Um, well, I, I think you might have to give a whole episode of your show to consider that possibility at some other date. Um, I don't think it's possible he met the Loch Ness Monster, but I do think it's possible he understands the world beyond the Christian realm as, as a world full of, of the unexpected, full of monstrosities, full of dangers. And, of course, it really was full of dangers. When Columba gets to the very far end of the Great Glen, He runs into the king of Pictland, the king of the Picts, and uh, a number of high-ranking Picts convert to Christianity, it seems, as a consequence of Columba's mission. And we know that Columba's men establish a little monastery at a place called Port Mahomick in Easter Ross. Now, maybe um, some of you guys have read books published by Christian Focus Press. Well, Christian Focus Press is uh, based immediately next to Port Mahomack Monastery, uh, that uh, monastery uh, that Columbus men established, and that that becomes a really important centre of the Columban mission to Picland. So, here's this great glen stretches diagonally across Scotland. You've got the monastery at Iona at one end, you've got the monastery in Port Mahomack at the other end, and those two poles, if you like, uh, become the 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 sort of centres of Christian mission uh, through that really, really difficult um, land, Scotland. So uh,
2: you talked about how uh, the Irish missionaries came to Scotland, but uh, we heard, or we know that it seems the Irish church had a major influence also in England. So how did that happen if at the time of Patrick, the Irish were considered a bunch of uh, wild barbarians?
3: That's a great question, Lucas, because you're right. In the fifth century, England was, you know, largely orthodox Christian. Um, Ireland was pagan beyond the, 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 the Roman Empire, beyond civilization. But if we skip forward 100, 200 years, the, the position is totally different because by that stage, England has been invaded by the, Ang- the Angles, the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, they've brought with them a very different understanding of religion. Uh, and Bede, uh, who is the, which is the name of the historian who writes about this period, Uh, of the history of the English church, describes the terrible persecution uh, that Orthodox Christians faced uh, at the hands of Anglo-Saxons. And the true faith, the Orthodox Christian faith, was almost completely extinguished in England. But by the same period, Christianity was flourishing in Ireland and these monasteries scattered through the country, other monasteries established by missionaries in Iona, Port Mahomet, and lots of other places besides. So, by but but by this period, uh, there's a real need for the for the English Church to be reestablished, to be replanted. Christianity has to be replanted in England. And one of the things that Columbus monks do, in addition to spreading the gospel or or or, or um, searching for solitude and and the life of prayer, all the way through the North Atlantic, they're also going across to England. Um, across to England and further across into France and even northern Italy. And they're establishing monasteries and churches wherever they go. It's a really extraordinary story, the story of the followers of St Columba. Uh, but one of the, the most important places they go to is England. Uh, and there's England, of course, at that point, it's divided up into multiple kingdoms. Uh, the Northumbrians take a great interest uh, in the monks from Iona, and they have a huge impact on the development of Christianity uh, among that people. A number of members of the Northumbrian royal family go to Iona, are baptized as Christians in Iona, and take the gospel back, and they bring their spiritual fathers with them um, so that they can begin to teach uh, the people in that in that kingdom um, the, the, the true Christian faith, the, the faith that we share today. So it's a really remarkable story of how people who were n- not always... Heroes in their own day end up having a really extraordinary impact in terms of church history. Um, Patrick goes to Ireland with absolutely no support from the church. The church is not backing him. He's got to raise his own finance. He does that by selling his own property. Columba goes from Ireland to Scotland. Um, why? Because he's been excommunicated. You know, because he has potentially stolen a book. So you know, these these are stories not about great heroes who are able to do extraordinary things all the time there's stories about people who make mistakes people who are very ordinary people people like you and i but people through whom as a consequence of god's providence and um, through whom god is able to work in really extraordinary ways
1: is it true that the roman catholic practice of private confession started with irish monks
3: Thanks Mina. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the case. Um the Irish monks were very very severe in terms of pastoral counseling. So, you know, like any other form of Christian leader, um, they would be approached by people who had, you know, made mistakes, uh, sinned either in relatively minor or sometimes very serious ways. And the Irish monks, the Columban monks especially, um prepared schedules, uh, tables of Uh, the kinds of penitence or repentance they looked for in the case of certain kinds of sin. Uh, And so, you know, if if you'd lied or if, you know, if you'd murdered someone at the opposite end of the scale, let's say, um, you would go to a monk, you'd go to a monastery, you'd ask for spiritual counsel uh, and they would, they would give you advice about what you should do to to, um, seek forgiveness. And of course, you know, as, as time goes on, this, becomes a very unfortunate aspect of medieval Christianity, the idea that you can do a deal. You know, if you've done this kind of sin, you can do this kind of repentance and you'll be okay. And of course, that's not at all how the grace of God works. We know that now, um, maybe more clearly than, than, than our forebears did then. But yeah, I think that's right, Mina. I think that is how the very familiar practice of private confession begins. It begins with the best of intentions, probably, of um, pastors who are really looking to make sure that people have really repented of the sins they've committed.
2: So in your book you said quote monks could live well they drank water milk and beer they dined on hens sheep cattle and when they were available seals they fed on eggs butter and cheese they enjoyed enjoyed honey from their beehives end quote so what was life like in an Irish monastery and how did they influence other monasteries in uh, other parts of Europe?
3: Thanks, Lucas. Well, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think that, that the monks often lived quite well. They worked hard, um, but they could live quite well. Now, I want to say immediately, there's oft- there's, there's always um, huge variety in the experience of Irish monks. don't know if any of you guys are fans of Star Wars, but you might know about the Jedi Temple uh, where Luke Skywalker ends up. Uh, Which is actually located on an Irish island called Skellig Michael. Skellig Michael is a rocky outcrop about maybe eight, 10 miles off the coast of the southwest of Ireland. Monks lived there. What did they live on? Well, they certainly weren't living uh, on, um, uh, they they weren't involved in high living. They were living a very, very basic life. Um, They couldn't cultivate any crops. Um, It wasn't particularly easy to row back to the coast to pick up any groceries that you might have forgotten about. So they were probably just living on fish and seabirds, and and I don't know what they were drinking, hopefully rainwater. Um, So they were obviously living in very difficult circumstances. Monks who were living on the mainland, on the main island, were probably living quite well uh, for some of the reasons I just mentioned. But what was distinctive about monastic life wasn't their diet so much as the way they organize time and space so irish monasteries are really interesting places they are organized a little bit like the old testament temple so you remember in the temple um there's a an extremely holy place the holy of holies at the center and then outside that there are rings of decreasing sanctity until you arrive at the Holy Land, Israel itself, and beyond that, the the unclean world. So there's degrees of sanctity from the very unclean world all the way through to the Holy of Holies itself. Irish monasteries were organised in a broadly similar way where you had at the very centre of the the complex uh, a place of prayer or of worship. And then outside that, there were rings built, actually like walls or fences that fenced in the most holy place, the slightly less holy place, the much less holy place, and then uh, Ireland itself um, outside that. And depending on the kind of person you were, you would live and work within one of those rings of increasing or decreasing sanctity. Um, So the monks obviously could go right to the centre. The people who worked for the monks um, weren't able to do that. So they would have seen what was going on pretty much from from the outside. That's how they organised space. In terms of how they organised time, Well, their their life was a life of prayer, work, uh, and study, uh, Bible study. And um, we know that Irish monks were very good at collecting books and preserving books. Maybe we'll chat about that in a second. Uh, Not just Christian books, but any kind of books, just books. They just love books. And they were also very, very interested in collecting the old stories, the old traditions that predated Christianity in Ireland. So nowadays when we talk about Irish mythology, sometimes we get the impression that these are stories that always existed independently of Christianity. In fact, the old Irish myths were collected by Irish monks uh, and were preserved uh, in monasteries. So these these monks were certainly not people who denied the importance of the culture around them, or even of the pre-Christian culture they they were trying to eradicate they were eradicating it in one sense through preserving it in another sense. That's a really interesting tension in the way they thought about the world around them. So uh, Irish monasteries perhaps were most significant internationally because of how they organized time, because they had a very distinctive way of calculating the date of Easter. And that th- 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 their way of calculating the date of Easter was different from the method of calculation used by most churches elsewhere in Europe. And one of the ways that we can see the Irish church's relative independence from um, church power in the rest of Europe is to see how long they hang on to this really idiosyncratic way of thinking about Easter. And they hold on to it for a couple of hundred years really after pressure is brought uh, on them to abandon that practice and to conform to the European church, to, to the church Catholic. One other thing, Lucas, I would say in response to your question that makes the Irish church distinctive is that it all it's always seen or it's often seen as a problem for church authorities in Rome. So during the medieval period when the power of the papacy is increasing, the Irish church always seems to do things its own way. For example, it it doesn't stop clerical marriage until the Protestant Reformation. So for 1600, well, not 1600 years, uh, for, for, for since the beginning of Christianity in Ireland in the 400s up until the 16th century, um, Irish, Irish monks, Irish priests, Irish bishops uh, are often married with kids. Uh, my favorite example of this is a churchman during the Protestant Reformation period, uh, a Catholic churchman who's known as the Turtle Dove of Chastity, that's his nickname. He's got 14 children and a wife. So, um, you know, he's got a very different way of thinking about chastity than many other um, Catholic clergy or religious elsewhere in Europe.
0: So, as I'm sure many longtime listeners will know, I'm a bit obsessed with architecture. And as you mentioned, the um, architectural distinctives of Irish monasteries. I was wondering if you could expound on that a little bit and uh, talk about the archaeological remains that we have of do we have any of those monasteries and churches left?
3: We certainly do, Emma, yeah, thanks. Um listen, if you ever come to Ireland, it is full of historic buildings. Um towers, you know, so what what one of the very one of the very famous iconic images uh of of the Irish landscape is is the old monastic tower. And there's scores of these. Uh, there's there's fewer of them than there used to be because they deteriorate, but they're everywhere. Uh, In fact, in the town close to where we live, Antrim, um, there's one in the middle of a housing estate. And these are often um, 10th, uh, 9th, 10th, sometimes 11th century constructions. So they are are ancient uh, and they are everywhere. So we have those, but we also have complexes, monastic complexes that have been preserved. The most famous, the one that's probably the most exciting to visit is in County Wicklow, just south of Dublin. It's called Glendalough, founded by St. Kevin. And if any of your listeners want to go onto the internet, just Google uh, Glendalough. They will see amazing images of what a a monastery would have looked like. Now, there's some more modern buildings on it, but they don't get in the way of understanding what it might have been like. And I think what's really, really curious about Glendalough, this ninth century uh, monastery, what's really curious about it is to see how small the main church building is. It's probably the same size as the front room in your house it could probably only accommodate 10 maybe 20 maybe 25 people standing up that's as many people as could get into that church building so that helps us see what the monasteries are about they weren't really about massive congregations listening spellbound to charismatic preaching not like that Um, these are centers of prayer often um rather than bible teaching if that makes sense and so the number of people who would gather into those um, almost beehive-like structures a very small number—because uh, it just represents the, the the men who are called to the special service uh, of monastic life.
1: We mentioned the poem Penger Band. Do you know when it was written and who wrote it?
3: Yeah, we, we don't know who wrote it, uh, Mina. That that's a, that's a mystery. Um, but it, but it's early on. It comes very early on in the monastic tradition. Um, I forget exactly which century it is, um, but it's a poem about a cat. And it's a poem that a monk writes as he's working, uh, illuminating or copying his manuscript. And he's comparing his life as a monk to the life of, of his pet cat. It's really interesting. If you get got a pet cat, you might want to write a poem about it too. Uh, but Pangerban ban, uh, ban or bon in Irish just means white. And Panger is the name of his cat. We don't know what that means, particularly it's not an Irish word. Um, but uh, his white cat is Pangurban.
2: So we also mentioned the Book of Kells. Can you explain what it is and uh, if it's important, why? Thanks,
3: Lucas. The Book of Kells is uh, the iconic book in um, Irish tourism. Uh, So if any of you guys have, have ever thought about going to Ireland and Googled Ireland one of the things that will almost certainly come up is a reference to the Book of Kells. The Book of Kells is uh 7th, 8th century, I think, ninth century maybe, um, copy of the Gospels in Latin. It's beautifully illuminated. It was written on Iona, so the best guess is it's written on Iona um, sometime before 826. Um, we know that because it gets moved from Iona in Scotland for safekeeping it gets moved right the way down into the Irish Midlands to the town of Kells so the Columban monks who prepare that book on Iona are facing from about 795 onwards up to the 826 horrific onslaughts by Vikings and um, the monastery is raided 802 806 825 I mean 60 monks are killed at one time but it continually repopulates. So even as they're being destroyed by the Vikings, they're preparing these incredibly beautiful manuscripts of the gospels. But for safekeeping, the the book gets sent back to the monastery in Kells, the Columban Monastery in Kells, and it gets known as the Book of Kells. The Book of Kells is a really, really interesting object, quite apart from uh, the fact that it's a copy of the gospels, which we love, um, which tell us about our savior, Jesus Christ. The form of the book is just extraordinary because the Book of Kells is presented to us now as an icon of Irish history, but there's very little about it that's distinctively Irish. If you look at the illustrations in the Book of Kells, um, you will see influences from the Picts. Remember Columba and his missionaries are going up into Pictland. You can see evidences of Pictish art in the Book of Kells, but you can also see evidence Of artistic styles from right the way around the Mediterranean. So, you know, the the Book of Kells is not an Irish book, it's a Christian book. For someone to become a Christian in the early, in in the late 700s, early 800s, was not to become a part of a national church, it was to become part of an international church, which had an international set of cultural influences exercising uh, upon it. And so the Book of Kells. It's this stunning representation of Irish Christianity, but only because Irish Christianity was absolutely tuned in to Christianity as it developed right the way around uh, the Mediterranean, right the way through North uh, Africa, right the way up through Europe, even into the pagan picked lands, you know, even into the missionary areas. Um, And it's just an extraordinary thing. One thing I'll just footnote there, Lucas, to your question is, Um, And this goes back to an earlier question I think Mina had about the historicity of um, Odovnan's biography of St. Columba. One of the stories that keeps coming up in St. Columba are stories about monks who lose their gospel books, right? So big deal, you can't just pop down to your Christian bookshop and buy a new King James Version or ESV or whatever preferred translation is. In those days, you've got to copy everything out word for word. There's not many copies. It's a laborious process. So you get given a book, right? These monasteries were producing starter packs for missionaries. They are they are copying books out. They're also involved in metalwork. Why do you need metalwork? Because you need, a, you need a cup for the communion service, yeah? So these monasteries are preparing starter packs uh, of metalwork, cups for the communion service, and gospel books that these monks can take all the way through the North Atlantic, across to Iceland, all the way through Europe, right the way across to North Italy, that's their territory of mission. That's their parish, and these monasteries are producing starter packs for monks to take with them all the way through that area. Do you know what's really interesting about the books they make? Lots of their books do get lost. The story in the the life of Columba is is right. The books often get lost. Now, in the in the Columba biography by his friend or by his, his direct descendant Adoener, the miracle story is. But lots of these books get found again, and they're in perfect condition. Now, you might read that on its own, and it's a miracle story, right? It gets dropped in a bog, years later it's pulled out, and it's in perfect condition. But it's not a miracle story because the same thing happens today. As recently as 2006, a farmer discovered a book of a copy of the Psalms, illuminated um, book of the Psalms, in a leather satchel in a bog prepared by Irish monks exactly in this period, pulls it out, gets taken for analysis, and guess what? It's still okay. How is that possible? Because these monasteries that are producing starter packs for missionaries who were sending these missionaries off in these tiny boats into the wild Atlantic were making their books waterproof. How were they doing that? They were creating little bags or boxes for these books that they were lining with, papyrus. Now, you don't get papyrus in Ireland. You've got to go to somewhere like Egypt to get papyrus. So when we talk about the interconnected world of these Irish Christians, they're manufacturing starter packs for monasteries, creating creating chalices, creating cups for the communion service, creating books, lining them in papyrus that they've traded and got from Egypt, and they're creating waterproof books for missionaries who are taking the knowledge of Jesus Christ literally beyond the boundaries of the known world. It's an extraordinary story. Extraordinary.
0: So a popular book that I read suggests that um, preserving a lot of uh, literature that was the Irish monk's greatest contribution to modern society. Do you agree with either the fact that they preserved lots of books or that that was their greatest contribution.
3: Thanks, Emma. Well, we certainly did preserve lots of books. um, And we know that uh, that was the case because there's lots of examples of students from, well, we talked about Northumbria earlier on, but students even from the European continent moving across to Ireland to study with the Irish monks because they become centres for the knowledge uh, of the bible their, their bible scholarship is really advanced um, their knowledge of languages is really advanced and their knowledge of literature generally is really advanced so we know that they do preserve books but your question is whether that's the most important thing we do uh, of co- course it isn't um the most important thing they do is actually bearing witness to the christian gospel itself and they, they seem to be very good at it Uh, because, you know, their influence, as I say, extends right the way across to Iceland, right the way across to North Italy. That's the immediate influence uh, that these Irish missionaries, these Irish monks have. But what's their, you know, what's the less immediate influence that they have? That's really, really hard to know. Um, They certainly were collecting books. Um, They certainly were developing Bible scholarship. They were certainly recognised as that their monasteries were recognized as some of the leading seminaries in the world at that time. Um, so they were doing a lot uh, beyond just collecting um, the, the the great works of civilization um, that they managed to save as the darkness settled in across Europe generally. Uh,
2: so uh, before you go, we have a couple of other questions that we uh, currently ask all of our guests. First, how did you become interested in church history? And second, if you could meet anyone from early medieval history, uh, who would it be?
3: Thanks, Lucas. Um, Yeah, I was. I don't really know when I started being interested in church history. I think I always was. Um, I grew up in a Christian family. My mom and dad were Christians. Um, There were Christians in earlier generations in my family as well, and I was interested in getting to know them and finding out about their life. And then I suppose I took an interest in. Um, the religious tradition in which I was brought up and I wanted to find out about it. And then from that, I suppose I I then wanted to find out, you know, well, where did that come from? And, you know, getting an interest in history is a bit like pulling a thread in a jumper. You just keep pulling it and more and more unravels and you get taken further and further and further back uh, until, um, you know, you you come back to the Acts of the Apostles and the beginning of Christianity recorded in the New Testament. So I think I think I was always interested in it. Um, it's a, I mean it's a great subject. Uh, God communicates to us obviously foundationally in Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture, but he also communicates to us in the history of his people in the history of the church. And I think um young Christians um if they're interested in history, they should be they should be encouraged to find a period or a person that's different from them who they can get to know over the centuries and i think it's not it's not too difficult to do that there's lots of there's lots of great resources out there that can help um teenagers um, get to know interesting people in church history people who you might find inspiring um or encouraging in different ways and it's, it's just a really wonderful thing to do
0: Dr. Grimman, we are so thankful that you decided to spend this time with us and share your knowledge. I've read your book, The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland, and I would highly recommend it to any of our older listeners, probably. Um, but alas, we have to say goodbye for now. Today, listeners have an opportunity to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's book, Patrick of Ireland, which includes information on the early Irish church. Just visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org, to enter the drawing. While you're there, you'll also find past episodes, special news, recommended readings, and more. And please consider making a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Don't forget to email your questions or comments to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org so you can be entered to win a copy of one of Simonetta Carr's books. And finally, be sure to tell your friends where they can find us. In partnership with the, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Lucas and Mina, I'm Emma. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.